welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Redemption Applied, the Ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 8 through 10. I would imagine for many of you this is a familiar passage. But as I conclude this series on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I wanted to look specifically at this familiar passage and to look at it through the lens of the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. So let's look together, Pew Bible, page 976, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our living God, help us, we pray, to hear Your Holy Word we may truly understand and that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A hymn absent from our hymnal, but once upon a time popular in the revivalist tradition, I would bet many of you know it, goes a little something like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. (laughs) Never again. (laughs) And in that hymn... It moves from decision, and then it proceeds to devotion. Though none go with me, I still will follow. And then from devotion, it goes to dedication. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And with its simple, repetitive words and easy tune, well, it can be sung by people of all ages, a hymn of personal decision, devotion, and dedication. There's just one problem. It's not true. No one decides to follow Jesus. Now, hold on. Before you get up and go running for the door, I want you to listen, at least for the next 30 minutes. Listen carefully. No one decides to follow Jesus, and here's why. Because that implies the ability to choose an impossibility to those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Of course, 
the true Christian, you would say back to me, that the true Christian does desire to declare his devotion and his dedication to Christ. And, and it's only fitting, it's right that we would desire to do that for Christ is the most important thing in our lives. But before Christ, if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, look with me at the very first verse of this second chapter. Before Christ, here's what Paul says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, your decision-making ability for Jesus, according to this passage, was non-existent. Your devotion was not to God, but to the world. And your dedication was not to the cross of Christ, but to the desires of your very flesh. That's what Paul says. That was the state that you were in. That was the state that I was in. And so, if I want to tell the truth, if I want to sing a song that's still simple and melodic, but it's telling the truth, what I really ought to sing is, I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. He rescued me. Because the truth is, look at verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Unlike obligation, the, the mercy of God. That's an important phrase. The mercy of God is not owed, but is the unexpected love and generosity of God shown to undeserving sinners. And grace, that unmerited favor of God upon the sinner, it's also the power of God through which He saves sinners from what we deserve. When someone says that you are saved, the question should be, what am I saved from? And the answer is, I am saved from the just wrath and eternal punishment of God. It's a big deal. Such grace is not earned or accepted, but is, the theological term is, monergistic. That's a good word to work into your repertoire. Always good at a Christmas dinner party. Well, you know, I think that's monergistic. Nobody else is going to know that word. No, nah, I'm kidding. But that word's important. What that word means is, is that God acts sovereignly without our cooperation in our salvation, and He does it through the work of the Holy Spirit. God does it through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
We don't cooperate with him. It's monergistic. He is the one who does it. And specifically, the Holy Spirit works, and I'm drawing from one of our shorter catechism question and answers, the shorter catechism works in convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills, persuading and enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And you say, could you go over that one more time? Yeah, it's in the bulletin. Those are the four points that we're looking at today. Let's look at them each one individually. The first is, is that the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works convincing us of our sin and misery. In the second chapter of Romans, Paul tells us this universal truth that applies to every human being on the face of this earth. And that is this, quote, They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts as their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or else defend them. In other words... We did not evolve to collective agreement that murder is wrong. Congratulations, as humanity, over however many years you came to that decision. (laughs) Wrong answer. Right answer? Murder is universally wrong because God's law says that it is sin. Truth written on our hearts and revealed through the conviction of our conscience. Even someone who has never heard of the Ten Commandments, someone who has never read the Ten Commandments, still knows murder is wrong. This is not to say that the human conscience is the perfect moral guide. I'm not saying that at all. The human conscience can be distorted by sin. Nor does the work of the law on our heart and its holy presence make us holy. It's not as if we are made holy from within and therefore outward. No, that's not possible either. But of the many problems that human beings face, and there's lots, right? Of the many problems that human beings face, this is the number one problem. We can talk about a whole lot of things. And I'm not a news watcher or a news reader or any of that sort of thing, but I'm told by my friends and family that we got issues all over the world. And this is the greatest. And I don't need the news to tell me that. Because my Bible tells me that. The greatest problem in the world is this right here. According to to the glorious standard of the Lord God Almighty, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without exception. And yet despite the disparity between God and man, we are blind to our depravity. While we may gain glimpses of our sin, or... While we may see clearly our neighbor's sin, we will not agree on our own, in our own power, we will never agree that our sin is the vile, atrocious, 
alienating offense to God that it is. No one wakes up in the morning and comes to that conclusion. In other words, we must be convinced. We must be convinced and we will not be convinced unless God acts. Praise God that He does, right? That's why in verse 4 of the chapter in front of you, that's why that first, those first two words are so important. But God. But God. According to the sovereign and perfect timing of God, the Holy Spirit is the one who convinces us of our sin and misery. Now, to be convinced of sin and misery doesn't mean that I simply agree that something is wrong or agree that my sins are many, for indeed they are, but that I am a sinner by nature. I'm a sinner by nature. And it's proven all the time by my thoughts, by my words, and by my deeds. David rightly confesses this in the 51st Psalm when he cries out, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We, and when I mean we here, I mean every human being in the entire world, we were not naturally born children of God. In fact, Scripture says that we were born children of wrath. Quite a contrast. And that's what David's saying. Saying, I, I, I am a child of wrath apart from salvation, not a child of God. And to be convinced of sin is then to see ourselves as we truly are, enemies of God, and our sin for what we truly have done is an offense to God. It's not, it's not fun. It's not trivial. And all the different ways that our world wants to mask what sin is. Sin is sin. And it is an offense to a holy God. I used this example with the kids in my communicants class. And you will appreciate it for its high level of sophistication. The cookie jar is in the kitchen. And mom has said, do not eat a cookie. And as you can tell, when I don't have this robe on, I'm a fan of cookies. I go in as a child, and mom's not home. And I take the lid off of the cookie jar, and I reach my hand in. And as my hand touches that cookie, dah, conviction. Mama said, don't eat the cookie in the cookie jar. And I've got it in my hand, and I let go of it like it's electricity. And I pull my hand, and I put the lid back on, and the, and the guilt doesn't leave. But it stays with me, because I have disobeyed my parent, and thereby broken the law. What am I going to do with this weight of guilt? The shame that I feel, that I carry around, that I put my hand in the cookie jar. The world would say, you should have eaten the cookie, man. It's not that big a deal. It's just a cookie jar. It's just a cookie. What's the problem? God says, even less than that has made you my enemy. Even less than the cookie in the cookie jar has condemned you for eternity to torment 
in a burning, flaming, anguishing hell. Just that. The person that is not repulsed by his sin would rather continue to indulge it. He's not been convicted of his sin. His sin does not make him miserable. Rather, he's just happy to keep on keeping on. But when the Holy Spirit convinces, we're undoubtedly convinced. There is no question when the Holy Spirit works. And when He convinces us of our sin and misery, what once seemed so trivial, now feels heavier than the weight of the world. We now see that sin is sin. And we are completely miserable. Number two. The Holy Spirit works enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ. The Holy Spirit works enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ. To be convinced of the sin and misery of our sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. But to be left there would be torment, wouldn't it? But God... There it is again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, through the work of the Holy Spirit, enlightens our mind to the knowledge of Christ. Rightly does John Newton teach us to sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Those simple words capture exactly what the Scripture is saying. That we see is a miracle. Because as John Newton says, once upon a time I was blind. I could not see. It's a miracle that I can see. And what do we see? As the Holy Spirit enlightens our mind, we, we see Christ. It enlightens our minds, minds to the knowledge of Christ. Or as Paul writes to the Corinthians, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a knowledge of the atoning sacrifice of our sinful Savior and the forgiveness and the reconciliation that He has secured for us. Think about it this way. On the road to Damascus, Saul, the passionate persecutor of the church, was confronted by the risen Christ Himself. And he was told of his future ministry to the Gentiles. In fact, he specifically said this. Your ministry is to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. And then Saul, who would later become Paul, was struck with blindness, wasn't he? And he was temporarily blind, emphasizing his inclusion among those whose spiritual eyes would be opened. As Paul learned, blind men must be led to the truth and then, and only then, miraculously enlightened to know Christ, to see Him for who He truly is. And so the Holy Spirit works, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Third, the Holy Spirit works, renewing 
our will. The Holy Spirit works renewing our will. Think about it this way. Prior to the fall, Genesis chapter 3, prior to the fall, Adam was not tainted by sin. He enjoyed the freedom to obey God, but also to disobey God, which he did. And when he did, his freedom to not sin and obey God was lost. In fact, Adam in that moment became a slave to sin and so dead in his sins and trespasses. A bondage of the will passed on congratulations to his progeny. And all of the children of Adam, of which every one of us here present and everyone watching on the live stream, we are all the progeny of Adam, and therefore we have inherited this gift, this curse that we are cursed with. Our wills are in bondage. In his book, Bondage of the Will, Martin Luther writes, Let all the free will in the world do all it can with all its strength. It will never give rise to a single instance of ability to avoid being hardened if God does not give the Spirit, or of meriting mercy if it is left to its own strength. Apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit, our will to obey the gospel, it's like Lazarus when he was in the tomb. When Lazarus was in the tomb, he was dead. In fact, Jesus was warned, decomposition has already started. Don't open it. He's been in there a while. He was dead. He was decomposing. Lazarus could not merit or will his way back to life. He was dead. And so is every man, woman, and child whose will is not renewed by the Holy Spirit. But just as Jesus stood at the tomb, you know the story, Lazarus, come forth! (laughs) So the Holy Spirit calls us out of that tomb of death and calls us to life in Christ, renewing our will that we may see and live unto Christ. Again, look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, Paul says, God made us alive together with Christ. I mean, for this reason, a verse that I would imagine all of you are familiar with, John 3.16, it's why John contrasts the word perish and life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. To continue in our sins and trespasses is perishing apart from true life into eternal death and everlasting torment. But in Christ alone, there is life. And John says that life lasts forever. It is always, it is everlasting, it is eternal life. Fourth. 
The Holy Spirit works persuading and enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ. You do realize this is a building process. We're working our way through in these points, right? So fourthly, and I might add finally, the Holy Spirit works persuading and enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ. Now think with me. The default religion throughout the world, though it goes by many names, is works-oriented. Favor with the divine is earned by merit. Favor by merit. Earned by effort. And yet, even if our effort were directing to God, as we sang last week, in a mighty fortress is our God, our striving would be losing. You can't strive enough. You can't earn or work hard enough to earn God's favor. Why? Because we're disqualified by nature. We're disqualified by our thoughts, by our words, by our deeds. Completely disqualified. Strive as we will. You can't outwork human depravity, nor outrun the judgment of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Man's first and greatest need is not to be improved. It is not to be given better advantages. It is not to be healed physically. Man's primary need is to be reconciled to God. And we can't. We cannot. We will not be reconciled to God through works-based religion but only through the one true religion that looks exclusively to the one born of woman, born under the law, not the progeny of Adam, but the Son of God, who committed no sin, but bore divine judgment for us, the wrath of God upon the cross, who died and was buried and then resurrected from the dead, conquering sin and death, And only and exclusively in Him are we reconciled to God forever. The Apostle Peter writes it this way to the church. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit And so we who have been convinced of our sin and misery, we who have been shown that our minds are enlightened, or rather our minds are enlightened by the knowledge of Christ, whose wills are renewed, who are persuaded and enabled by the Holy Spirit to embrace Christ, we see that His persuasion is not merely that we consider Christ an option, but that we see Him as He truly is. When we understand, by God's grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, our true state, and then the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and renews our will, and we see Jesus, we don't say, nice option, I'll get back to you. But it's good to have choices. Or maybe I'll, maybe I'll decide on this next week. No. 
you can't do anything but run to Jesus. I love the way the catechism puts it, that we embrace. That we embrace Christ Jesus as He is freely offered in the gospel. We're not merely enabled to make a good decision, but to hear the gospel freely offered and to believe and to believe as if there is nothing else that we can believe but the gospel. Because you see, Lazarus did not reject Christ's command. He didn't hang out in the tomb and say, I liked it better on the other side. He probably did. No. When Jesus cried, Lazarus, come forth. He comes forth. And when the Holy Spirit works through the offer of the gospel, so we come forth. We're not persuaded and enabled anything else but Jesus Christ, the life-giving power of God's irresistible grace. It is therefore through the work of the Holy Spirit that as the Shorter Catechism puts it, we partake of justification, adoption, sanctification, and of the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. By God's grace, through faith in Christ, we are justified. That means that our sins are pardoned. That we are accepted as righteous in God's sight. Not for anything that we have done, but for the reputed righteousness of Christ. That we are adopted by God's grace through faith in Christ. That is, that we are received into the family of God with all the rights and privileges of God. I said at the beginning of the service, so I'll repeat it now. If anything, we should give thanks. That's one. I, who was an enemy of God, am now called a son forever. By God's grace, through work of the Holy Spirit, we have been raised up with Christ, as it were, seated with Him in heavenly places, so that in the coming ages, Paul writes, we might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We who are in Christ, we are on display. Not for your politics, not for your opinions, not for your snarky comments, but for Christ and only Christ. And we are on display for the world to see. For nothing of ourselves, but all to the glory of Christ. All for the glory of Christ We are then, Paul says, God's workmanship. Out of all of creation, as beautiful as it is, we who are in Christ are God's workmanship. Created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We who were originally made in God's image, yet fallen in sin, are now redeemed. And we are, in our redemption, we are being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. What did Susan's, I think it was a friend, said, said, sometimes I don't want to call it sanctification, I want to call it spanctification. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because it sometimes feels that way. But being conformed to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit 
is in the end a beautiful thing because it is in Christ, in the perfection of Christ, that we live out these good works that God has ordained. Yet even our good works are according to the sovereign grace of God, as Jesus said, that our good works are lived out before man. Not so somebody can say that you're a good man. Because <laughs> you're not. Or woman. But Jesus said, live your life in such a way that man may see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. And therefore, let the testimony of our lives show and the praises of our tongues proclaim the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Because I never wanted to follow Jesus, but He rescued me. He rescued me. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we have looked at your holy word today and we are reminded, but God. Had you not acted, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. And all of those first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, that would be our present tense. And it may even be the present tense of someone here today. I pray that we would look to you in faith. To Christ alone, who is our Redeemer, who is our Savior, and who has saved us through faith from the wrath of Almighty God. And so our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we indeed would be a thankful people living out our lives in Christ for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m., our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.